Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews from Monaco 24 this week. We look at the results for the first round of the French elections. It's a bit odd to think that amongst an age group that seemingly should be uh, young people with liberal, progressive ideas, that they would uh, prefer a candidate that harks back to <laughs> sinister times of bigotry. It just doesn't sit well. Plus, we speak with Virginie Fira, the star of Benedetta. All the uh, heroines of Bolvaruven movies are complex women, and Benedetta is in this tradition. Often the people ask me, is she a saint or she's a manipulator? But I think the truth is in between, she's both. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about the French elections. We had a round table with Isabel Hilton and Abila Randami. They're assessing the first round of France's presidential election. For the second presidential election running, France is determined to make the world sweat on its choice between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. In the first round of the election yesterday, Macron, the centrist incumbent, finished in front with just south of 28% of the vote, ahead of Le Pen, the far-right Yahoo, on 23% and change, who fell into the second round runoff just ahead of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far-left Dingaling, on near enough to 22%. Um, Isabel, this is actually about the same margin as in the first round in 2017, which was Macron 24, Le Pen 21. It was a blowout in the second round, however, uh, Macron winning it by about two votes to one. Do we anticipate the similar outcome this time? I'm not at all sure we can. I mean, Macron then was a, was a challenger. He was a, he was an upstart figure. He'd invented his own party and so on. He's in a very different place now. He's to blame. You know, that's the problem with incumbency. You are to blame. Um, and, and another, I, I mean, a lot will depend uh, on where the where the candidates who are not, you know, who've dropped out direct their votes, of course. Uh, some of them will avoid Marine Le Pen. I have the impression a lot of people will stay home because they don't mm. like the two that are left in, in the room. And a very curious thing um, that I noted in the age group, and I'm longing to hear more about this, that Macron uh, is very popular in the 70-plus category, mm -hmm. but he does very poorly among the 18 to 34-year-olds who tend to favour uh, Le Pen, which is curious, I, I think. You know, the, the, uh, the, it's, an, it's an odd configuration, and I don't know quite what that will do to the second round. But it's certainly very different from last time. It, it is different from last time on a number of levels, Nabila, but one of the things that's different about this from a lot of previous uh, French presidential elections, especially recent ones, is that not absolutely everybody does hate the incumbent. He is blamed for everything, but recent incumbents uh, have... Well, I mean, François Hollande didn't even bother to defend his presidency because I don't think even his own immediate family could have been relied upon. Um, so what has changed, though? As, as Isabel points out, Macron is not making his case to young France, is he? Well, interestingly, there was, before the first round of uh, the election, actually, there was a YouGov poll that came out which uh, said that uh, um, Le Pen was popular amongst the 18 to 24 years old. Now, I was a bit suspicious of that poll 
all because it didn't give any um, uh, reliable sample or any way uh, it was carried out. But after the first round of voting, it turned out that um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is actually the one who attracted the most votes by far amongst that age group, over 35% mm. or so. And then um, Marine Le Pen with less than 20% and further down the line, Emmanuel Macron. And it kind of makes sense in a way. France it has a very strong socialist feeling at heart. It's, a, you know, it's not hard to find a socialist sentiment in France. And um, it's a bit odd to think that amongst an age group that seemingly should be uh, young people with liberal progressive ideas, that they would uh, prefer a candidate that, uh, you know, harks back to <laughs> sinister uh, times of, you know, bigotry and or def- stands up for uh, ideas of, you know, bigotry like the mm-hmm. far right party. It just doesn't sit well. Except as people actually voted, uh, it seems that they preferred the two extreme wings, be it left or right, to to uh, to uh, Macron. Well, I think it's exactly what you were vote. Yep. what you were referring to. You know, it's a difficult place to be when you're an incumbent yep. president, and he hasn't impressed that many French people during his presidency. I mean, if you remember, his presidency has actually been marked and indeed marred by violent protests every Saturday uh, for a long period of time. Uh, you in, in fairness, that's true of most French presidencies. <laughs> <laughs> it is the national sport. <laughs> it is. But the Yellow Vests uh, movement was particularly determined and the repression was particularly ferocious. Um, you mentioned there, Isabel, that, and you're right, that the voters, aside from Macron's, have gravitated to quite extreme positions on the right and left. And it is is one of the things that has definitely shifted in terms of French presidential elections in the last five years or so is that the Republicans and the Socialists are, are basically, no, I mean, they're nowhere. gone. Yeah. They're nowhere. Is there any way back for them, do you think? I think not. I think when you get a shift like that, it's very, I mean, what it's telling us is that those parties had, have had their day and whatever emerges, I think, will be quite different. Um, I'm, I'm also interested in, um, and I haven't seen data on this, uh, in the first round, in a, any difference between metropolitan France and rural France in this vote? Because I noted with some surprise my former independent colleague, John Litchfield, mm. who's been a correspondent in France for you know the last millennium, really, uh, lives in a village in Normandy and predicted boldly that uh, Le Pen would win. And he thought his village would vote pretty much 80% for Le Pen, which was extraordinary. And we stay in France. This week I had the pleasure to speak with Marie-Pierre Lannelong, editor of M Le Magazine du Monde, the weekly magazine from the daily Le Monde. And it was a pleasure. That was for the stack. It is doing very well. I think the first two weeks of the beginning of the pandemic, the lockdown were a little bit hard for us. How to do a magazine without any report, without any shooting. But after two weeks... We realized that it was possible and it was challenging and stimulating in a way, even if we were very happy to go back to normal. And I think it has never been so well. I think the readers are here, especially on the the digital edition. It grows every week, every month, and we have never had 
more subscribers. And I think also the situation of the press in France, but in Europe as well, with some very big groups that uh, have made choices to globalization. In a way, it helped us because we are local, we produce every image, every feature that we publish. And I think it makes the difference and probably it helped us, especially to work with the best photographers and stylists in the business, in the industry. And I think you can make the difference, you know, because uh, we are a true team with 40 journalists for M magazine, 500 for Le Monde. So we do a totally fresh and homemade magazine.com and a daily, big daily paper. And I think, yes, I mean, the people, they can see the difference. And I have the impression that in the horrible times that we live in, people, they need serious news they need to be informed they need serious journalism but if i speak about m they also need to read other stories to see beautiful pictures and to see pictures with a meaning you know not just beautiful pictures but pictures that mean something and that are relevant in the crazy moment that we live in for more than two years now. Can you imagine how different the situation was the last time we spoke to and a half year ago? That was completely different. It's crazy. It's like pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. But you're right. I mean, people need this sense of hope. And I think the magazine does very well. And you mentioned photography there, Marianne. I have to say, Emblem Magazine du Monde, I love that you dedicate pages and pages for beautiful photography. Only in the last issue from last weekend, there was a lovely photo shoot of Paris of the 70s. The design, oh, that, yeah, was, yeah. that was so beautiful, so beautifully yeah, done. Yeah, that was beautiful. I love it. Yeah. We have changed to have enough money to produce, as I said, it's like a very good dish, you know? It's fresh, unmade, with beautiful ingredients. Sorry for perhaps you, you will be shocked by what I say, but really it's it makes a big difference. We work with photographer, very good journalist, the best photographers, the best graphic designer, you know, so we have the change to be able to do that because we have budget and we we have the freedom to do that. So we have to do our best because so many journalists, so many magazines don't have the change to do that in this period. So we enjoy working, actually. We enjoy publishing the magazine every week. It's great. What does the magazine mean for Le Monde in general? You know, is it quite important for them to have that brand because as i said i can see every issue there's a lot of advertisers as well so how important is m for le monde i think it's important of course you mentioned the advertisement of course it is uh, it is important 
for Le Monde because it helps Le Monde to be a very serious actor of the fashion industry. And it is so because they edit the M, Le Magazine du Monde, of course. But also, I think, and especially during those two crazy years, I think it's also important on an editorial side. And we saw that with the pandemics. After the first weeks, even if we were able to produce feature on the situation, and we are able to produce feature on the war in Ukraine as well, they were very happy to offer the readers other stories on other subjects, beautiful pictures. And I think it's that's also a very important thing. And we experiment during those two years that our readers, they also want to have feature on lifestyle, on food, on design. They also need that. They, they come to Le Monde to read a feature on politics, on international politics, on on the situation, but I think M helped Le Monde to be a strong brand on lifestyle as well. And that's why we decided to edit with M, Le Magazine du Monde, uh, a new supplement three times a, a year, 100% lifestyle, and it's called Le Goût de M, The Taste of M. And it's a new brand, like a little brother of M, just on lifestyle. And I think we, we help Le Monde also on the editorial side. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And the war in Ukraine has now lasted for 50 days and more, and is showing few signs of letting up anytime soon. Ukrainian resistance has been fierce, with reports that the Russian warship Moskva in the Black Sea was struck by Ukrainian forces and had to be evacuated. Did Russia underestimate Ukraine's resistance? And is there any path forward for peace? We were joined earlier this week by Volodymyr Yermolenko, Ukrainian journalist, philosopher and editor-in-chief of Ukraine World. Every poll uh, before the war, public opinion poll, showed that Ukrainians are ready to resist. Of course, we had some doubts whether the, there is an institutional capacity, good management of the armed forces, but Ukrainians showed that they were ready. Uh, of course, there were some mistakes, but generally the readiness was very high. And with every new day of, of uh, Russian aggression, this readiness also gets gets stronger. Many men return to the country. Ukraine is receiving uh, good weapons. And today's results show that, uh, yes, Ukrainians are getting even stronger. Let's talk about those reports you mentioned. Indeed, it's reported that the Russian warship Moskva in the Black Sea was struck by Ukrainian forces and had to be evacuated. How much more can you tell us? Well, this is a very symbolic gesture because uh, Ukrainians, you know, had uh, Russians had advantage on the sea. The Black Sea is, is a very important place because Russians are just blocking Ukrainian ports. It's not only about a hot war, it's also about the economic war, because Ukrainians depend so much on, on their ports, because through the ports we are exporting foodstuffs all across the world. So now Ukraine is not exporting food across the world, and many regions in the world are, um, you know, suffering from this, as you know. 
So it's it's a very symbolic gesture also because of the of the name of the ship. You know, there are so many memes right now in Ukraine that Mos- Moskva means Moscow, Moscow is drowned. And uh, thirdly, there is information that uh, it is precisely that ship from which there was a, a, a first threat to Ukraine on the 24th of February, uh, after which Ukrainians who were defending uh, the Serpent Island told them to, uh, well, there, there is you a say it. this wording. Yes. And, uh, and there is a mem all around Ukraine. So when you travel all around Ukraine, you see this name, Russian ships, uh, you know, go away. Let's, let's, uh, let's rephrase it in that way. And uh, there is information that this is this precisely ship, you know, so, and it's one of the biggest Russian, Russian ships. And Ukrainians have shown that they can strike Russian ships. And uh, as you might know, also, when British Prime Minister Boris Johnson visited Ukraine, he also promised anti-ship missiles. So th- that's a very important, important thing. And as Ukrainians get more um, weapons from the West, there were these uh, supplies were delayed, but but they are ongoing right now. I think Ukrainians have even more chances to to resist and to win in this war. You mentioned those weapons Ukraine is getting from the West. What is the feeling over there in the country at the moment about the support Ukraine is receiving from around the world? There is a double feeling, of course, because on the one hand, there is an appreciation of this assistance. On the other hand, and there is always this feeling that it, it is not enough. Uh, we understand that, for example, according to estimates, Russian economy will suffer and will shrink by uh, 10 or 11 percent, but Ukrainian economy will shrink by half, you know, almost by 50 percent. And we we should struggle for the fact that Ukrainian economic capacity uh, stays strong uh, because on this also much much depends on this. So Western sanctions are very tough, but they can be even tougher. You know, there are many loopholes uh, letting the Russians to avoid these sanctions. There is also talk that the West is suffering from that. But, you know, one one thing is to suffer economically when your economy can shrink by, you know, several percentage points. And another another thing is that you see the genocide in Mariupol, you know, dozens of, of, of thousands of deaths. The world has seen genocide in Bucha and other uh, in other towns. So um, we should understand that the, the front should be, uh, you know, common front. Ukrainians are fighting on the ground, but uh, there should be a massive second front, uh, primarily the economic front. And uh, there are much, much that could be done yet. Can you say to which extent Russia's attack has united Ukraine? Do you see a difference? Of course, because every time Russia Russia attacks Ukraine, we we have seen the solidarity growing up. We have seen that in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and um, occupied parts of Donbass. But I would say that today's consolidation is even even more, because well, obviously in the Russian-speaking regions in the east and southern Ukraine kind of the the attitudes to 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 Russia was changing from the 2014 to a more negative one but when you see a russian speaking city of mariupol just erased from the face of the earth and then the citizens buried uh, you know next to the streets and and then uh, many people just uh, taken to the concentration camps 
uh, near the city or take into Russia. And there are reports of mobile crematoriums. We don't know whether it's true, but it's very um, possible that it is true. When you see Russians are bombing, shelling the mostly Russian-speaking city of Kharkiv, the second largest city of Kyiv, of course, the support to any kind of sympathy with Russia just goes down to a zero level. Mm. Just finally, Volodymyr, can you try to describe how Ukraine and Ukrainians think about the future? Is there any optimism that a peace deal may be reached, for example, anytime soon? You might be surprised, uh, but uh, the majority of Ukrainians, and when say I say majority, it's really over 90%. Uh, the high majority of Ukrainians are confident that Ukraine will be victorious in this war. So the, this uh, and what we have seen on the ground, you know, all this heroism of Ukrainians, the, the resistance, even in the towns that are now under occupation. Yesterday we have seen reports that in Melitopol, which is a town under occupation in the southern Ukraine, basically we're witnessing a real partisan war when, when Russian soldiers uh, patrolling the city are just, you know, somehow they're, they're dying from attacks. Uh, so that means that the Ukrainian resistance is huge, even under occupation. And uh, therefore, this also gives a, a high spirit to Ukrainians. There are already ideas what Ukraine after this war will look like. Uh, one of the metaphor is that it will be like fortress Europe, you know, very, very much focused on security and defense, but also trying to develop a very European uh, style of life, Uh, based upon freedoms, economic freedoms, etc. So this is the way how Ukraine was developing in, in the past years, and I think this trend will will even increase. As for the deal with Russia, well, it's it's always always difficult because uh, because Russians do, do not do not uh, basically we have seen it from the 2014. No ceasefire was observed and. Uh, It's, it's, it's really very difficult to talk. And uh, every time when you see after these massacres in Bucha, in the opinion of Stormel, in Mariupol, well, it's very difficult for Ukrainians, of course, uh, to persuade Ukrainians that there should be any compromise with Russians. And as Australia prepares to return to the polling booths in May, Andrew Muller discusses Prime Minister Scott Morrison's chances of retaining his position as leader and who could oust him. Under the Australian system of parliamentary democracy, the Prime Minister may call a federal election any time within the three-year term to which the House of Representatives is elected. Australian political history is replete with examples of Prime Ministers going early to maximise periods of popularity and or catch their opposition napping. In 1974, for example, Gough Whitlam had served not even a year and a half before he sought an extended mandate. In 1998, John Howard had just cleared 18 months before he asked the country for permission to crack on. There are other less dramatic, though equally riveting, examples of Australian Prime Ministers going early when they believe themselves at an advantage. 
So when an Australian Prime Minister announces an election to be held on the last day possible before they are technically enacting a coup d'etat, it can be reasonably inferred that they are not dauntlessly confident about their prospects. The incumbent, Scott Morrison, has just done exactly that and very clearly isn't. Our government is not perfect. We've never claimed to be. But we are up front. And you may see some flaws, but you can also see what we have achieved. Australians will vote on May 21st. If opinion polls are any guide, Morrison would indeed be ill-advised to be over-investing time and energy in planning his second full term. He and his Conservative coalition government, and we must here address the eternal counterintuitive irritation that Australia's principal Conservative Party are called the Liberals, are polling a distance behind the centre-left Labour Party, under its newish leader, Anthony Albanese. Labour, by the way, contribute to the annoyances of covering Australian politics for overseas audiences by obstinately using the U-less American spelling of Labour for reasons occluded by times missed, though this is obviously less of an issue in audio media. That paragraph is 16 seconds nobody's getting back. Scott Morrison has not been an especially audacious, inspiring or transformative Prime Minister, but in fairness has never seemed like he wanted to be. The image he has projected of an earnest, plodding suburban dad has probably not been that much of an artifice. In an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald's Deborah Snow earlier this year, Morrison countered an accusation that he lacked big ideas with the retort that, as he saw it, the ordinary, pleasant, safe, unfussy Australian life was the big idea. This is a makeable case, but it has been made before by Prime Ministers less prone to avoidable blunders. I've obviously returned from leave and I know that that has caused some great anxiety in Australia and Jenny and I acknowledge that. I'm sure Australians are fair-minded and understand um, that when you make a promise to your kids you try and keep it, but as Prime Minister you have other responsibilities and I accept that and I accept the criticism. And that's why Jenny and I agreed that it was important that I return, particularly after the terrible tragedies that we saw late this week. Morrison has seemed tone-deaf in responding to the natural disasters which any Australian Prime Minister should anticipate having to deal with, and shifty when questioned about his faith, something which generally makes his irreligious country suspicious. Added to which, the government Morrison has led for three years has been in power for nearly ten, a historically unusually long period for Australians not to get entirely bored with having the same party in charge. It's a choice between a government you know and a Labor opposition that you don't. While a Morrison victory is unlikely, it is not impossible. At Australia's previous federal election in 2019, few thought Scott Morrison could win. It is not even clear whether Morrison would have bet on his own chances. He had become leader of a rancorous party in an internal coup. He followed two Liberal Prime Ministers who hadn't worked out, Tony Abbott by being just a massive weirdo, Malcolm Turnbull by being in the wrong party. 
And the last 48 hours before polls opened were turned into an advertisement for the virtues of the Labour Party at its vigorous, daring best by the death of Bob Hawke, one of Labour's and Australia's greatest leaders. And Morrison still won. I have always believed in miracles. Hoping to thwart a similar mishap this time is Labour leader Anthony Albanese, who replaced Bill Shorten after the 2019 loss. Albanese is by background old-school Labour, raised by a single parent in public housing in one of Sydney's less glamorous inner suburbs. Albanese handed out his first Labour leaflet as a nine-year-old campaigning to get Gough Whitlam elected in 1972. Albanese has since repositioned himself as a Bob Hawkean pragmatist, but is running a campaign notably light on actual policy, uncharitable interpretations of a couple of recently flubbed lines have suggested that this gives him less to forget. What's the national unemployment rate? National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's 5.4, sorry, I'm not sure what it is. Election 2022 does not shape as an era-defining clash of visions. This is no Howard versus Keating 96, or Menzies versus Evert 54, or Scullin versus Bruce 29. Whoever wins on May 21st, Australia will continue to saunter serenely through history as one of Earth's most supernaturally fortunate countries. In other jurisdictions facing such a low-stakes contest, turnout might be a problem, but Australia, as if recognising that its politics were not going to be the stuff of feverish passions, made voting compulsory in 1924. It is, of course, arguable that this has helped make Australian politics so agreeably stolid by marginalising the angry fringes. Nevertheless, Australian voters will be offered the traditional enticement of the polling station barbecue, or as it has come to be known, the democracy sausage, as they determine whether or not Scott Morrison is on a roll. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlights here on Monaco 24. We have now our usual letter from New York, by Henry Richardson. This morning, an urgent manhunt in New York City as police intensify the search for the gunman who opened fire on a subway train Tuesday morning. The morning rush hour quickly turning to chaos when police say a gunman put on a gas mask, opened two smoke canisters on a moving train in Brooklyn's Sunset Park, and opened fire. We still do not know Tuesday's attack on a subway train in Brooklyn left 23 people injured, 10 of them hit by gunfire. The main suspect, a 62-year-old man, was arrested in Manhattan on Wednesday. My fellow New Yorkers, 
We got him. We got him. We got him. We don't yet know what the shooter's motives were. The suspect posted YouTube videos in which he went on disjointed political rants. In one of them, he made fun of the attempts of New York Mayor Eric Adams to reduce subway crime. Unsurprisingly, the attack has made international headlines. Aside from its scale, it represents one of the US social ills that has most fascinated and repelled people abroad. Gun violence in general, and mass shootings in particular. But for New Yorkers, the attack feels like the culmination of a more local and insidious trend. For two years, since the beginning of the pandemic, the rates of violent crime on the subway have been creeping up. In January, crimes were up 75% compared to the same time last year. The rate of violent crime has increased even as ridership has plummeted with people staying at home to work. Mayor Eric Adams is desperate to reverse this trend as the city emerges from the pandemic. He recently introduced a thousand additional officers to the subway to bolster riders' sense of safety. Really, COVID recovery is attached to public safety. Public safety is the prerequisite to prosperity, and we have to deal with gun violence and the gang crises that we are experiencing here in our city. But Tuesday's shooting will shatter the confidence in the system that Adams was trying to build up. The investigation into the shooting has been hindered because an MTA security camera that might have captured an image of the shooter wasn't working. Adams has said the camera malfunctioned, implying that it was a one-off freak accident. In fact, it might be the case that none of the cameras in the station were fully operational during the attack. And an investigation by CBS has revealed that officials were repeatedly warned over the past five years that the cameras were at risk of malfunctioning. None of the security cameras inside the 36th Street station were transmitting pictures as the train bearing the suspect entered the station. This detail only illustrates what is obvious to anyone who's ridden on the New York subway in recent years. The system is crumbling. If any major improvements are going to be made to the subway, they're going to have to come not from the mayor's office, but from the governor's, which mainly controls the MTA. But such investments are probably the furthest thing from Governor Kathy Hochul's mind this week. She's facing a political crisis after accepting the resignation of Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin, her second in command. Benjamin was arrested on Tuesday on federal corruption charges. The timing is awkward for Hochul, to say the least. Hochul was herself the lieutenant governor under Andrew Cuomo. She replaced her boss last year when Cuomo resigned amid sexual harassment allegations. The gubernatorial Democratic primary is coming up in June. Hochul is desperate to win the election so she can get a mandate from New York's voters. She seemed to be comfortably in control of the race until Benjamin's resignation this week. Hochul's rivals immediately went on the attack. There are even rumours Andrew Cuomo might attempt a political comeback by running for his old job as an independent candidate. Mayor Adams has been watching all this unfold from Gracie Mansion, his official residence where he's been isolating with a case of the coronavirus. He received a positive test on his 100th day in office, hardly how he must have envisioned celebrating that milestone. A mayor in convalescence and a governor on the ropes 
hardly boosts the morale of a city that felt, for a brief time, like it was emerging into the light at the end of the tunnel. And for Food Neighborhoods this week, we have a lovely dish suggestion by two pioneers of Tibetan food in the UK. I'm Yeshi. And I'm Julie. We run the Taste Tibet restaurant and recently brought out our cookbook, Taste Tibet. And yeah, we wanted to talk about muli and yogurt salad, which is one of your mum's favourite recipes, isn't it? Yes, it's really a freshness and a really healthy recipe. Yogurt is usually available summertime in Tibet or more plentiful at that time. And the muli is a vegetable that maybe most people may not have even have heard of or they may know it as daikon. It's a kind of large white radish and it's similar in texture to carrot. It's got that kind of crispness to it. And in Tibetan food, it's used across a wide range of soups and stews. But in this recipe, it's just shredded and combined with yogurt and, and some other ingredients to make a very quick salad. Yeah, and first put a little bit of salt and squish a little bit of juice out and put a yogurt in and then a little bit of spice as well. Mm, so. Some fresh green chilli. Yeah, it's delicious. Just good, healthy. It makes a nice kind of accompaniment to some bigger, heartier meals. So if you've got a, a like a stew or some other big pot of something like meaty, Tibetans say that muli is good for digestion. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have got something quite kind of meaty on the go, on the side, this is a nice one just to help you digest your, your Sunday lunch. You are listening to The Curator. Here we have the latest episode of Eureka. My story begins in South Africa. I'm from the northern part of South Africa, which is called Mpopo province. It's uh, by the Kruger National Park, neighboring Mozambique. I was born there and I went on to study finance in my university. During my generation, you couldn't really pick which career path because our parents would pick that for us. And if you know a bit of the history of South Africa, it, in 1994, the apartheid era stopped. So my parents grew up during the apartheid era and a lot of black people were in poverty when I was growing up. So we were the first financially independent generation. Hence, we needed to pick careers that you would get a job and you would get money out of. Hence, you were either a doctor, you were in finance, engineer and those kind of uh, jobs. I was always a creative all my life. However, I couldn't go that path because that didn't pay the bills. I actually went on to work for a big multinational American, Procter & Gamble. They found me in university and that was my first job. I was with them for about six years, worked in South Africa in Cape Town. I was in the commercial department, I was responsible for setting up distribution for Procter & Gamble in Southern Africa, East Africa, which I eventually had to move to Kenya, which was the hub for East Africa, covering Mozambique, uh, Angola, Zambia, Namibia, Botswana. I traveled a lot. It was very interesting for me since I love traveling and I explored different cultures in Africa and obviously learned a lot. I quit my job and I went back to be a full-time student. I was 27 years old at that time. My classmates were 19, 20 years old and I studied in Guangzhou, China one year and I moved to Hong Kong, which was the main head office of the school to complete my degree in fashion design. 
So my degree in fashion design was very holistic. So it was not just learning about design, but we were learning textiles, pattern making, sewing. So it was a full holistic fashion design degree. My intention of studying was not necessarily to go and work for a big fashion house. I had already worked for a big multinational corporate, which gave me all the basis that I needed in order to start my own business. Procter & Gamble is one of the best in coaching and training, so I had received that structure from there. My main aim was to start my own fashion label, my namesake brand, which after completing my studies, that's what I did. I started my namesake brand called Judy Sanderson. I moved to Portugal which my husband is from Portugal and also we weighed that Portugal is actually a very good country for production here in Europe. So when I started my company Judy Sanderson in Portugal 2019 it was very clear for me from the beginning that this needs to be a conscious company, sustainable. So we started off just sourcing desktop fabric which is fabric that a lot of brands overproduce. So a lot of factories in Portugal are sitting with a lot of dead stock which eventually needs to be thrown into landfills because it needs to be destroyed because they cannot keep accumulating all this. So what we do, we approach them and we buy off all this stock that's been sitting there for years and we create collections out of it. So the philosophy of Judy Sanderson is actually rooted on uh, where I'm from and how I was raised because from my culture, from my village, we are raised with a philosophy of Ubuntu. Ubuntu is a way of living. It means I am because we are. It's living in community, so it's all about us. So whatever you do, you need to be considerate of the other. And if the other is hurting, then you should be hurting. If the other is happy, then you rejoice with them. So with that philosophy, it's all part of the foundation of my brand and all inspirations that come from the collections are all rooted on my foundation. From my culture, you will see vibrant colors because my culture is, it's a cocktail of colors. That's our traditional wear. So the designs and silhouettes that we do and we are strong at is trench coats and tailored blazers with broad shoulders. We do our dresses, midi dresses, maxi dresses, summer dresses, yellow, pink, green, bright colors. We also do some blacks as well because black is a super elegant color that is enormous for every collection. All these textiles are actually all sourced from Portugal because Portugal is rich in that and we like to work a lot with viscose. It's a quite a sustainable fabric as well as Leocell. Within a span of six years, I had three children and I had also a company that I'd just started. So there have been a lot of challenges, as you can imagine, putting things into context, starting a company, being a mom, moving to a new country, not understanding the language, and trying to penetrate a textile industry that speaks in Portuguese. Of course, Portugal speaks English, especially the young people, they speak fluent English. However, when you move into the factories, you really need to address them in the language that they understand. So it was very important for me to learn the language right from the get-go. So I am able to communicate clearly in a manner that people understand. And people are more receptive when they can relate to you when you speak to them in their own language. That was the most important thing I did first, learn the language. Though that didn't remove all the obstacles that come in your way. Firstly, when you're a woman in this industry, uh, it's a very a masculine industry, as you know. So there are some challenges that only women face. So what I've realized is that fashion school teaches you to be a fashion designer and not to be an entrepreneur. And most designers leave fashion school wanting to build their own brand make, and making it big in the world. That's every designer's dream, right? And 
most designers fail because we are not trained to be entrepreneurs, we're trained to be fashion designers. I was lucky because I had the background of working for Procter Gamble, so I had that structural foundation. I started my company, which I needed to switch hats all the time. I'm still switching hats from one department to the next. I'm marketing, I'm sales, I'm production, I'm everything in this company, I'm PR. So that was quite a transition for me as well. Having to take on the entrepreneur hat came with a lot of challenges because you need to know how to prioritize your time. You need to know how to manage people. However, I got the hang of it after a while, made a few mistakes on the way. But after a while, I started to understand the balance that is needed in order to get this ship going and get this machine rolling. To the world of design now, we take a look at the 16th century Procurati Vecchi building in Venice's St. Mark's Square, which recently opened to the public following an extensive but sensitive restoration project by the studio of Sir David Chipperfield. The tourists are back with a vengeance in Venice. They've been sipping their Aperol spritzes today and taking selfies on the bridges of this canal city. Now, you may be able to hear the bell tolling. I'm in St Mark's Square, which is really the epicentre of tourism in this city. I was last here during the pandemic and there were nothing like the crowds that I'm seeing today. I've heard accents from the UK to France. Now, you may be able to hear some construction work that's taking place on the Basilica in front of me, but there's also another restoration project that's been taking place over five years, a painstaking labour of love from Sir David Chipperfield, the famed British architect who's had the job of restoring and enhancing the Procurate Vecchie, one of the long, long buildings that lines this square. And I'm here to get a bit of a sneak preview to find out what the studio has been up to. I'm Emma Ursic, the director of the Human Safety Net Foundation at Generali. The procurators used to live here and they, with the Republic of Venice, they used to have an administrative role. They used to look after the wills, so the private wealth of the city, but also look after, for example, social issues such as the orphans and the poor and the widows. And the idea that we come back now with this contemporary use and public access, but also the work of the foundation, which is centered on social inclusion, I think it's a nice homage to the past. And above these porthole windows, I see what look like fragments of a fresco, perhaps? Yeah, I guess this place was never really lived maybe it was the servants quarters or maybe a warehouse so this is probably quite you know humble drawings of ships and ordinary life in Venice on water. Obviously a lot more people than before are going to be coming through these doors and seeing this building how does that feel having this being discovered for the first time in many years because you know here we are in St Mark's Square and thousands or millions of tourists see the facade of the building but they may be looking at the basilica and have no idea what's actually behind where we are now. It's going to be a discovery journey for us in beginning this new life 
of the building because Generali has been in this building since 1832, so six months after its foundation in Trieste. It started here in Venice, one room in the Procuratia, and then one by one, essentially the whole wing. So this is a new beginning, and as you say, it's never been open to the public before. So now it will be freely accessible. People will pay a ticket to come to the exhibition, but half of the ticket would be going to one of the programs, and the visitors can choose which program. And then we have a cafe. So, of course, we expect lots of international visitors to come and discover this new space, but also the people of Venice to have a new space to be with people they care for, to come on a Sunday morning, enjoy a brunch, and then listen to a concert, and then come and see the activities that we have set up here for them. My name is Giuseppe Zampieri. I'm the director and partner of David Cipofiakides Milan. It's very complex to work in a project like this one. And I think it's always a challenge to overlap architecture with new intervention together with old interventions. I think the biggest challenge it was to try to add a new layer to the old layers. And what we did try to do is to read always the building as a source to give ideas and to give us support to introduce new ideas and new layers into the project. My name is Cristiano Biglia. I'm an associate director of David Cipriffio Access Milan. The building was always a font of inspiration, and also Venice was a font of inspiration. And uh, all what we did in the integration of the existing was done in relation also with the artisan, of the local artisan in Venice, using material and technique typical of Venice. So there are people really very specialized in making this kind of typical Venetian material as marmorino, terrazza veneziana, pastellone, cocciopesto, that are material used in Venice in all his history. It's more than 1,000 years. One of the challenges was that this building or set of buildings, as it was, was modified in different parts at different times. But you had to somehow bring this uniformity. And I think it's been created with this beautiful arch. Maybe you can talk about this. The introduction of this arch has been probably one of the most important architectural elements. And it is probably with the floor. And in this particular case, the floor is uh, not terrazzo, but cocciopesto. Probably it is the most important intervention on the third floor. I would say that the arches are made by terrazzo, but they are precast elements. So it's like a new reinterpretation. Yeah, because normally it's flooring and now it's been used in, in arches. In arches, yes. And as Cristiano was saying before, you know, the challenge of every new intervention in the project was to try to find routes and sources to look ahead. And for example, you know, in this particular case, the floor is a typical Venetian floor done by hand. We don't have to forget this. As well as the terrazzo in the lower floors, as well as the cocciopesto in the upper floors. But the arches, the material is coming from the past, but the idea is looking towards the future. I did see, for example, just walking along these archways, I saw a few little frescoes of a half-exposed ship. What sort of things did you find while you were doing the restoration work and, if you like, peeling back the layers of this building? We are in the third floor. The third floor was, the, in a way, in the beginning, the poorest area of the building. And this one was very good because, for this reason, it was protected, in a way. And here, the, our intervention was more uh, concentrated on revelation of the history of the building. So we started to remove the plaster and we discovered history in the walls that we wanted, in a way, to show. In this case, for instance, we use this typical Venetian way to finish the walls. It's called Shalbatura. That is a kind of lime whitewash in order to see all the history of the bricks. 
And the last word, well, we should leave that to Sir David Chipperfield, who was unable to be in Venice due to a busy work schedule, but spoke to us from Santiago de Compostela in Spain. We were able to encourage Generali to, I think, go quite a long way beyond strict commercial decision-making because this type of restoration is complicated. It's much easier to cover up a wall. It's much easier to put some plasterboard somewhere. I mean, what we've done is uncover everything, bring everything back. That takes patience, not just from the architects and the contractors, but also from the client to understand that restoring something in this way is a noble cause. It's much easier to imagine the reward for the client and for everybody in those rooms which are highly visible. But what I think has been good here is that we've been able to do that even through areas which are, are less visible in conventional ways. For Monocle in Venice, I'm Ed Stocker. And the last item of the show is my interview with Virginie Firad, the star of Poverhoven's latest, Benedetta, which is out now worldwide. An excellent film, and it was a pleasure sitting down with Virginie. Benedetta! Viens à moi! J'arrive, Seigneur! J'arrive! On ne comprend pas toujours les instruments de Dieu. Virginie Fira, welcome to Monaco 24. I loved Benedetta. I think such an interesting character. You know one thing I like about Benedetta? Tell me a bit more. I mean, I really warmed up to her as a character, but she she's not a saint, you know, she's not a sinner. She's she's in between. She has she's a very complex character in yes. some ways, right? Yes. All the heroines uh, of Bolvar Ruven movies are a little bit like that. There's all the time complex women. And Benedetta is in this tradition. Often the people ask me, is she a saint or she's a manipulator? But I think the truth is in between. She's both. For me, the, the movie is a very deep interrogation about faith. And I think that she, she got the faith very deep, very deep. So deep that can make it something that um, it's like a superpower, you know. And... She's also a politic woman, and maybe she has some personal ambition too. And all that is mixed. She really has a particular relationship with God, but also it's very difficult for her to have this kind of relation and to feel desire for a woman. It's a little bit schizophrenic things. <laughs> she find a way to put that together. For me, that's good because... She said, I can have my own relationship with him. And maybe it's okay like this. But after you have someone who maybe she wants to have her private room and do everything for that. Like she's a saint, but she's uh, also uh, maybe a little bit dangerous, yes. Mm. Which makes it more exciting, actually, as a character. Yes. And tell us about working with Verhoeven. It's, it's, it's the second time, right? Yes. Is it true that he didn't have anyone in mind? It had to be you, like when he was thinking about the film. That's what I read. That there was no, you know, he thought about you immediately. Yes, it's a strange thing because me, I'm a big fan of him. The first movie that I see, it was Basic Instinct. After that, I look at all these American movie, and after I discover all the Dutch movie. For me, it's one of the best director alive. Because it's always very deep and intellectually profound, but it's never a pensum. 
they always have some humor. He got a sense of image very impressive. I like his feminism too. I like everything. When he came in France to make movie with Said Ben Said, the producer, make also movie with Cronenberg and uh, Brian De Palma and in France. That's interesting. There was a casting for Elm. And I said, oh, I want to go to this casting just maybe to speak to Verhoeven. It's enough for me to, to look at him, maybe speak a little bit Dutch because I'm from Belgium, I speak Dutch. And, okay, I make the casting and well, I got to the movie and it was very good on the set. I just have t 10 days, I think, in this movie. Very good, it was okay. I think it was fine, my work very okay. But one or two months after, I was in a hotel and Paul Verhoeven was there too. I said, oh, I'm going to say hello to him. And I go to his table and I say, uh, hello, Paul. And he look at me like, who's this person? Virginie, I work in your movie. Ah, yes, Virginie. Je fais, oh, la, la. I didn't impress him uh, at all. Huh? Bon, he forget already uh, me. And la later, somebody um, gave me a book with interview of Paul Verhoeven. And he talked about Elle and he said something about me. He say, Oh, I met Virginie in, in a hotel, but I didn't recognize her because her character in Elle was very good and didn't recognize her. That was not so nice. <laughs> was in my life, I was like, uh, I don't know. After he told me, I write a movie for you. He write a movie uh, and I don't have an international career and he make uh, this movie with me, no casting at all. Uh, okay. And when I ask him about the preparation of the character, he say, you know what you must do. Okay, but in the movie I resuscitate, in the movie I have, uh, I don't have that all the time in my life. Huh? But uh, okay, I prepare, I, I prepare myself alone. And um, sometimes I do something and he say, oh, it's strange, but I think it's good, yes. And he do that with all the, um, with the actor, but also with the, DOP with everybody on the set. I do that. It's 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 create a responsibility of everything, and everybody love him because his work, of course, and also because he has something very special. He's the most kind person, most kind person that I know. His age is very young, but it's 83, and his experience make him very sure of what he do. And when you have that. You can listen to all the others. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening.